We see Jesus in the whole of Scripture from the very beginning to the very end. It isn't just that the New Testament is about Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus, including the minor prophets. So we're continuing our series today called A Summer in the Minors. And the intention of this series is for us to see Jesus. Not just to preach on some books that are relatively obscure in today's church. We want to see Jesus. Now i got a question for us this morning to begin with though. And this isn't just for the kids. The adults can answer this as well. Who is your favorite athlete of all time? Favorite athlete? Michael Jordan. Anyone else? Yes. Tim Tebow. All right, we had some reaction to Tebow. All right. Uh, Who? Tom Brady. Hey, maybe they can rub off on each other. All right. Anybody else? Who? Oh, Greg Maddox. Okay. Now, another question. Who is the greatest athlete in any particular sport who's ever played that sport? Okay. It may not be the same question who your favorite athlete is. I'm talking about especially the Tebow thing going on here. Uh, who's the greatest athlete to ever play uh, any specific sport that might be on your mind? Jack Nicholas. Okay. Olivia? Michael Phelps. There we go. Wayne Gretzky. Okay, lots of names out there that you guys are familiar with. Of course, I think of Michael Jordan as the greatest. Now, here's the deal, though. Every generation, a player comes along who people say, this is the greatest player who's ever played this sport, and there'll be none like him. There'll never be another Michael Jordan. There'll never be another Gretzky. There'll never be another whoever. Only for a couple of generations later for someone to come along who busts all of their records. And then they say, well, there'll never be another one as great as this guy. That's just kind of the way sports is, isn't it? Before Michael Phelps, it was who? So you forget about the guy eventually. Mark Spitz, right. And pretty soon, instead of, what was the golfer that was mentioned, Jack? Pretty soon it's going to be who? No chance, Mark says. No chance. All right? The point is, we say, well, this is the greatest person who's ever played this, and there will never be another like him. But, of course, that's proven wrong. You see, there's a question that Micah asks in the book that we're looking at today. Basically, he's asking this question, who is like our God? Who is like our God? And it's a rhetorical question because, of course, there is none like our God. There is none like our God. I read Psalm 113 earlier, and I purposely read that psalm because it mentions the question, who is like our God? Who is like our God? It's not like these athletes. There's not going to come along another God who's going to break our God's records, another God who's going to replace our God. You see, men come and go, even great men, great athletes, great politicians come and go. They rise for a time only to be displaced a generation or two later. But no one can displace our God. He's incomparable. He's irreplaceable. He is the sovereign king of the universe. And I believe that comes shining through in the book of Micah today. So our next 
minor prophet we're doing is Micah, so please turn there. The book of Micah. It's our next in our series of minor prophets. I'll remind you we are doing a summer in the minors, meaning we are doing, well, we're doing 12 weeks over 12 minor prophets, meaning we are doing a sermon for each minor prophet. These are overview sermons, so we're trying to get the whole of the teaching or a general view of the teaching of the specific minor prophet into one sermon, and that is certainly a challenge. Uh, Next week we'll be doing Joel. The week after that's Jonah. Peter's going to be preaching the Jonah sermon for us, and I think I may have actually given Peter the hardest one to try to fit into one sermon, even though Jonah is shorter than some of the other minor prophets. Micah here is seven chapters long. Last week, Hosea was 14 chapters, and before that was uh, Amos, who was nine chapters. And I also want to remind you, these are called minor prophets, not because they have a lack of importance in Scripture, but because their prophetic written works are smaller than some of the other prophets like Isaiah. So, please stand, if you would, as we turn to Micah. We're not going to start at the very beginning of the book of Micah. I want you to turn to the last chapter. We're going to read chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. That's what's going to get us started this morning. Chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. And then when we begin the sermon, we'll go back and we'll walk through the whole book. Micah chapter 7, beginning in verse 18. This is the word of the Lord spoken through Micah the prophet. And it says... Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. As you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, my prayer this morning is that we will see how great you are. What a great God you are. Who is like you, God? There's none like you. God, help us to see that and believe it. But we have sinful eyes that don't want to see the truth. So open our eyes this morning. And I have a sinful mouth that's not prone to speaking the truth. So guide my mouth this morning. So Lord, we ask for your help that we might worship you rightly. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, Micah, like many of the other minor prophets, we we don't have a whole lot of information about Micah. But we do know a few things from this book. Uh, Because of the kings that are listed in the very beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, the kings that are listed during the, that were were around during the ministry of Micah, we know that Micah ministered in the mid to late 8th century B.C. That would make him a contemporary with Amos and Hosea, who we've already studied. But Amos and Hosea were in the northern kingdom, the, the northern tribes of Israel. You remember the kingdom is divided at this point. There's the northern tribes of Israel. That's where Amos and Hosea were ministering. And then there's the southern tribes, which is Judah and Benjamin, and and those tribes are called Judah. And this is where Micah is ministering. That would make him a contemporary of Isaiah, who was ministering at the same time Micah was in Judah. This ministry of Micah's was probably fairly lengthy. We can get that from some clues in the text. He probably ministered before and after the fall of the northern kingdom. 
the fall of Samaria in 722 B.C. We know that he was from a town called Moresheth, which was about 20 miles from Jerusalem. It would have been a very rural area. So he was not part of the, the ruling class, the, the upper echelon of society which lived in the cities. We know that he was a fiery prophet, and he would be remembered many years later, 150 years later in Jeremiah chapter 26, verse 18. As Jeremiah is about to be killed because he's bringing a prophetic word of judgment that's about to come immediately upon Jerusalem. Jeremiah is about to be killed and they decide not to kill him. And they bring to mind, they remember Micah's prophecy. There's a little more we can know about Micah from this book. You see, Micah likes to interject some personal thoughts or prayers even in his oracles here. So we can just look through the book and we see some things about Micah. We see that he's a man who mourns over sin in chapter 1, verses 8 through 9. And then also in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. He is a man who mourns over his own sin, but also over the sins of his people, of the, of the people of Judah. Micah, like Jeremiah, who would come after him, laments and wails over what he calls an incurable wound that has come upon Judah. He mourns over sin. How many of us mourn over the sin, our own sin, but the sins of the people around us? I think we have a tendency to point out sin or to be angry about sin. And, and that's not wrong to be, have a righteous indignation about sin. But I think what we need to see more of in the church are people literally weeping over the state of our, of our nation, of our churches, and of ourselves. Mourning over sin. We need more men of God who mourn over sin. We also see from Micah's own comments that he is a man of powerful, spirit-wrought convictions and words. In chapter 3, verse 8, we see him setting himself apart from the false prophets and the false teachers of the day. He says this in verse 8 of chapter 3, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Now sometimes I think we think, that these two things can't go together. Someone who is, who is tender-hearted and broken over sin, but also someone who, who declares boldly the true uh, righteousness of God. Sometimes I think we think those things can't go together, but I think that mourning over sin and bold proclamation of truth have to go together. We need more men of God who are not ashamed to speak God's words faithfully and boldly, but that are men that are also broken over sin. We also see in chapter 7, verses 7 through 10, which we'll read later, that Micah was a man of great faith. He found his hope in God alone. He mourned over his sin. He spoke boldly. He spoke the truth boldly. And he had an unwavering faith in his God. We need more Micahs in our day. Now, there's one other thing about Micah that we can know this morning. And I think it's very important for our purposes here this morning. It's, it is that we can see Micah's theme in this book simply from Micah's name. Micah's name means who is like Yahweh. That's his name. That's what his name means. Who is like Yahweh. I said earlier that the question, who is a God like our God, is, is in my mind sort of the key to this book. And so when we read in verse 1 that the word of the Lord came to a man named who is like Yahweh, and then we read at the very end of the book in chapter 7 verse 18 that we read earlier, uh, Micah asking the same rhetorical question, who is a God like you? So I want that question, who is a God like our God, to be the question that drives us this morning. And of course, it's a rhetorical question. As I've said earlier, there is no God like our God. The triune God we worship is unique among the gods. 
There is one true God amongst the gaggle of imposters. I think that Micah in many ways is simply an exposition of God's self-revelation that he's already made in the scriptures. In Exodus 34, 6, this is what it says when Moses asked to see the Lord. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation? And Moses quickly reacted, it says in verse 8. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. God's just wrath against sin, against guilty sinners, is shown in Micah. For we see that he is, he is indeed a God who will by no means clear the guilty. And yet also God's gracious mercy is made known in Micah, for we will indeed see that he is a God who is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, a God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Honestly, we see this pattern in in pretty much all the minor prophets. It's sort of the pattern, God demonstrating his justice and then proclaiming his mercy. Uh, It's sort of the formula, if you will. Uh, when When I... I grew up on TV from the 80s. The 80s were a terribly formulaic period of time. All the TV shows kind of had a formula they followed every week. Now, you know, there were no real twists and turns. You know, today you watch TV shows and they're taking you a thousand different directions or whatever. But, but you know, you always knew what you were going to get with the A-team every week. Okay, you get a team of, of, of these, these uh, rogue um, uh, special ops soldiers who get hired by someone who's in trouble. And so they come to help out, and then they themselves get in some sort of bind, and they come up with some sort of contraption or some sort of plan to get themselves out of the bind. And then the bad guys come, and somehow the bad guys are in a Jeep or something that flips upside down at some point during the show, and it lands on top of itself, and the bad guy crawls out unharmed. That even happened with a helicopter on one episode. And he crawls out unharmed. The A-team wins the, the victory and then gets out of town before the authorities show up. Every show is the same way. They had a formula. All they had to do was put in the blanks. Okay, here's how it works. And then MacGyver was just the A-team with duct tape. It was the same thing. And that's the way the 80s were. It's very much a formula. So as we, as we go through the minor prophets, they could have lived in the 80s. All right? There seems to be a formula here that's repeated over and over again. And the formula is this. God is going to demonstrate his justice, his wrath, his anger, his just anger towards sin. But he's also going to show his grace and mercy. And unless we see the cross in the minor prophets, those things don't make sense. Exodus 34, 6 through 7, makes no sense without the cross. And so the minor prophets, just like Exodus, is all about Jesus. And we'll see that as we go through Micah. Let me just say that God's mercy cannot fully be made known apart from God's justice being rightly shown. God's mercy cannot be fully made known apart from God's justice being rightly shown. You see, the willy-nilly sentimentalism that infects today's evangelical church likes to make much of God's mercy, but it rarely speaks of God's justice. I heard another preacher say this. He said, Micah wouldn't get a book contract with today's Christian publishers. 
is good enough for God's book. But if Micah were to present his, his uh, manuscript to today's Christian publishers, they'd say, ah, that won't sell. We can't put that. It's, it's Lifeway, not Wrathway. You can't put that in here. It's because we live in a culture that likes to, to, to live on a diet of sentimental fluff. And we're actually being denied a deeper understanding of God's love. For to be defrauded of the full knowledge of the great justice of God is to be deprived of the full knowledge of the grace and love of God. Therefore, the God that so many people think they love is a God they don't really know. It's a God of their own making. It is worrisome times that we live in today. And it was worrisome times that the prophets lived in as well. There are three distinct sections here to this prophetic work by Micah. Perhaps these were three different prophecies that he put together to give us what we have here, the book of Micah. The first section is chapters 1 through 2. The second section is chapters 3 through 5. And the last section is chapters 6 through 7. We can clearly see a distinction between these three sections. Now section 1 and section 3 almost mirror each other in a lot of ways. The middle section is a little bit more complex. But then when they're all put together, we see one whole beautiful prophetic work. And in this whole book and in each one of the sections, we see Exodus 34, 6 and 7 being preached. And that is number one, that that they're given a word of judgment and doom followed by a word of hope and grace. So God is demonstrating his character in the book of Micah. So I want that structure, that three-part structure to guide us this morning. So my three points this morning are going to be based, the first point is going to be based simply from uh, chapters 1 through 2. The second point is going to be from chapters 3, 4, and 5. And the last point is going to be from the last two chapters, chapters 6 and 7. So here's the guiding question for the day. Who is a God like our God? Who is a God like our God? And here's my first point. A God who personally judges and punishes sinners, but who likewise personally forgives and gathers sinners to himself. I apologize for the typo on your notes. It says gathers twice and it's not supposed to. A God who personally judges and punishes sinners, but who likewise personally forgives and gathers sinners to himself. And you see there that I'm putting the emphasis on the word personally for a reason. Micah 1 verse 2. Follow along with me as I read. Hear you people, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Notice God's personal role here, that he himself is like a witness in the courtroom. Let the Lord God be a witness against you. And he's also the executioner, verse 3. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. This phrase in the Hebrew means that he is marching out for battle. Continuing verse 3. And will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. He's coming to tread upon the high places of the earth. This isn't a leisurely stroll. God is coming to crush, to tread upon sinners and their idolatrous behaviors. This is language used for crushing grapes and making wine. I want you to see the personal nature of God's actions. It's popular today for some theologians and pastors to try to depersonalize and redefine God's wrath saying something along the lines that it's simply the inevitable result of cause and effect in a moral universe. 
And I know that that's an attempt to try to vindicate God, but Micah saw no need to vindicate God. He says God is personally involved in acting out judgment upon sin. Look in this passage and you will see three times where God says, I will, beginning in verse 6. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces and her Wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. I will, I will, I will. Why? Why so personal? Because all sin is ultimately an offense against the person of God. All sin is ultimately personally aimed at God, whether the sinner realizes it or not. Yes, our sin has disastrous ripple effects that impacts others, but ultimately God is the one we sin against, for all sin is treason against his lordship. God's standards are the ones being breached. God's character is the one not being upheld. God's image is the one being distorted when we sin. God is in our crosshairs when we sin. That's why David would say as he confessed and repented of his adulterous affair with Bathsheba, he would say in Psalm 51 verse 4, against you... You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Against God only? What about Bathsheba? How about her husband Uriah whom David murdered and and the other soldiers, by the way, who died when, when that plan was carried out for Uriah to be killed? How about the baby who died as a result? Well, they were all hurt by David's sin, yes, but they were merely the disastrous collateral damage that resulted from David's attack on God. We talk about collateral damage in military campaigns. We're going to bomb the military factory, but there's a school right beside it, so there may be collateral damage. The way our sin hurts those around us is the collateral damage of our attack on God. So God, against whom all sin is a personal act of treason, personally judges sin and carries out punishment of sin. Now what sins is God judging here? Well, there's a Pretty much the same catalog of sins that we've seen in the last two um, prophets that we've looked at. Remember, they're all prophesying at the same time. In this first prophecy here, though, in chapters 1 through through 2, we see that Micah is focusing on their worship, their corrupt worship, uh, their corrupt religion, in other words, and also the injustice that's going on in their society. Judah was a bit slower than its sister Israel to jump on board with all the syncretizing of, of true religion with the pagan religions around them, but it was only a matter of time. Now when Micah says in verse 3 that the Lord will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, he's referring to their false religious practices. You see, the people of Judah and Israel worship their false gods at shrines and at altars built in high places in the mountains. And so God, when he's going to tread the high places, he's coming to deal with their sin of idolatry. When we lived in Ecuador, and we'd oftentimes have to drive through the mountains, well, we lived in the mountains, and we'd drive to the coast. And one of the things that always made us very disturbed was that pretty much every few miles there was a shrine. Right there on the side of the road, you see a big shrine with some sort of statue of some sort of saint, usually Mary, though, that was there, and all this stuff around it, and and there'd be these shrines on the side of the road, and you were supposed to pull over and, and pray to these different saints. That was the intention of, the, of these high places in Ecuador. What was ironic is that 
Ecuador being a third world country, their thievery was quite an issue there in Ecuador. You couldn't leave your bike sitting out in front of your house or anything like that. It'd be gone in a second. Yet at these shrines, there were all kinds of trinkets and even valuable things that were left there, and those things were never touched because of the idolatrous superstition of the people. And so here in Micah, the same sort of prostituting is going on here in Israel during the during the ministry of Micah. You see, the people of God had corrupted the true religion given them by God by mixing it with other pagan religions, thus creating an an unholy amalgamation of, of what was false and what was true, and God hated it. He was going to crush it underfoot. God's pulverizing judgment would come because of their consistent and constant sin. Verse five of chapter one. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? You see, Samaria and Jerusalem were the two centers of of worship and governmental power for the northern and southern tribes, respectively. And God is saying that those places were corrupt to the core. There was no longer any true worship going on in these places. matter of fact, God even calls, if you look there, he calls Jerusalem a high place. He's calling the temple on the temple mount a high place. He's calling his own temple a shrine to the false god. This was shocking language for Micah to use. They worshiped carved images according to verse 7. And they prostituted themselves as Hosea so effectively pointed out in the prophecy that we read last week. So their worship was corrupt, but there was more. Micah shows us in chapter 2 that there was social corruption and injustice. Verse 1 of chapter 2, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they will perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house and a man and his inheritance. The rich got richer at the expense of the weak and the vulnerable. The land was so important to people. That was their inheritance. They would pass on to the next generation, yet the powerful were seizing it from them. Maybe not just by, by thievery, but usually through lawsuits, frivolous lawsuits in other ways. And of course, the judges were corrupt. And so the rich got richer as the weak and the poor got weaker and poorer and more vulnerable. So God is personally going to avenge, to judge this behavior. Look at verse 3 of chapter 2. Therefore, Thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, here's that personal language again, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. So Micah comes and begins to preach that the people have sinned personally against God with their social injustices, with their corrupt worship. Therefore, God was going to personally judge them. And it should be no surprise to us that the people did not like what they heard. Verse 6 of Micah, chapter 2. Do not preach. Thus they preach. Do do you catch the irony here? They're preaching at Micah to stop preaching. It's kind of like people today saying, you know what, I can't tolerate your intolerance. Right? Do do you catch the irony here? Matter of fact, it's hard for us to see in the English and and without spending a lot of time going word by word through Micah, um, but even all the minor prophets, they use a lot of uh, sarcasm, irony, uh, wordplay. Matter of fact, chapter 1, uh, verses uh, 10 through 16, we didn't really have a time to look at this morning. He, he lists out a bunch of towns that are going to be judged. And all of the judgments that come after he mentions the town, it's all a wordplay. The name of the town is very much similar to the judgment that's going to come upon them. So you can spend some time studying that for yourselves, if you will. But they didn't like this at all. Do not preach, thus they preach. 
One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. They didn't want to hear preachers like Micah. They didn't want leaders like Micah. Who did they want? Verse 11 tells us who they wanted. Chapter 2, verse 11. If a man should go about and utter wind and lie, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. He'd be the preacher of our day, too. He'd be the preacher that would say, your best life now. That's the preacher of our day. That's not the preaching. Micah's preaching was not the preaching they wanted to hear. They had itching ears and wanted to accumulate teachers that would suit their own passions. But because they were so unwilling to hear the harsh words that God had given Micah to speak, they probably couldn't hear the gracious words that God had given Micah to speak. You see, God graciously gives bad news so that he can get our hearts ready to hear the gracious good news. And after this denunciation of the people and their itching ears, we read this in verse 12 of chapter 2. Listen to this, these gracious words. Listen to the personal language here. This is God speaking. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. Who is like our God? A God who personally judges and punishes sinners, but who likewise personally forgives and gathers sinners unto himself. Amidst all of this doom and promises of being crushed due to their sin, Micah gives God's people this word that God has a remnant to whom he's going to show great mercy. Notice again God's personal involvement. The three I wills here in chapter 2 match the three I wills in chapter 1. God is depicting first by Micah that he is a sovereign judge, and then here he is saying that he is a shepherd king. Tenderly assembling and guarding his people like a shepherd and then valiantly leading his people out of their bondage like a delivering king. He is the king who will set them free. Verse 13. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. The king passes on before them. And if we have any question about who this king is, Micah doesn't leave the question unanswered. He says, the Lord is at their head. God is the king, sovereign judge with his justice shown, shepherd king making his mercy known. God's judgment is never his last word. Friends, who is a God like this God? Psalm 35, 10. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and the needy from him who robs him? But how? But how does God do this? How, how can a just God save guilty sinners? Well, Micah's not done yet. Micah has more to say, so let's move on with the second prophecy, which is chapters 3 through 5 of Micah. And here's our second point for the day. Who is a God like our God? A God who punishes sinners through unjust rulers, but who likewise promises to deliver sinners through a righteous ruler. A God who punishes sinners through unjust rulers, which we'll see here in a second, but who likewise promises to deliver sinners through a righteous ruler. Micah starts this second section with a further cataloging of Israel's sins, but this time he focuses on the leaders. Micah 3, verse 1. And I said, Hear you, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil? And that sort of sums up their attitude. They hate the good, they love evil. God goes on to describe their injustice in a shocking way with cannibalistic terms in chapter 3 verses 2 through 3. 
2b through 3. And I'm not going to repeat those right now, but you can read that and see what graphic language God is using. God is saying through Micah that the unjust and corrupt leadership that was going on in Israel was like cannibalism, consuming their fellow men. The leaders were crooked and nefarious. They took advantage of the poor, the disenfranchised, the weak, and the vulnerable. These leaders, when they begin to feel the heat of God's judgment upon them, they cry out in false contrition, chapter 3, verse 4. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He'll hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. But this corruption wasn't limited to the civil leaders. Verse 5, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Their preachers were for hire. They gave peaceful words to those who fed them. In other words, they said what those who had the money wanted to hear. Sow a seed of $1,000 to my ministry, and you will have prosperity and wealth. Wicked preachers, then and today. All combined, the religious and civil leaders of the day had brought terrible sin upon the land and were practicing injustice. Look at verse 9. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Oh, my friends, how God uses prosperous times to get his people ready for judgment. So God was going to judge them personally. Verse 12. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. And that's our God, a God who hates iniquity, who hates transgression, who hates sin, who hates leaders who lead the people into injustice. He has to hate it because by his very nature, he is a just God. So justice is part of his character. But the people didn't want to hear the words of Micah's God. So God gave them over to corrupt leaders. And that in due time, they would reap what they sowed. But again, judgment is never God's final word. For the people were like lost sheep without a shepherd. And so God promised that he would send them a righteous ruler. And more than that, that he would be the righteous ruler. Look at Micah chapter 4. And just soak in these glorious words as we read through this. I'm just going to read through this and throw a couple of comments here or there. Because you know what? My comments aren't as good as what God has to say anyway, just directly. So let's just read it. Micah 4, verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills and people shall flow to it. You see, Jerusalem was going to be destroyed in chapter 3, verse 12. But here, a new Jerusalem is promised. Verse 2. And many nations, not just the ethnic people of Israel, many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. You see, God is promising that he himself will be their teacher. Continuing on. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and he shall decide for strong nations far away. You see, God is promising that he himself will be their judge. And not only theirs, but the judge of the nations. You see, God's justice would extend beyond just ethnic Israel. 
Continuing on in verse 3. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. God is promising that he himself will be their prince of peace. Verse 4. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. You see, he is promising God himself that he will be their provider and that they will learn to live on every word that comes from his mouth. Verse 5, for the people walk each in the name of its God, but we, that's the remnant, the ones saved by God, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. You see, that God himself is coming to be a sovereign king and ruler over his people forever. Verse 6, in that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. Wow. His judgment has afflicted sinners. Yet out of those afflicted sinners, there's a remnant that he's going to come and heal. God himself is promising he will be their healer. He will be their restorer. He will be their justice giver. He's not saying, get your act together. Have you learned it yet? Have you gotten enough justice yet? No. God judges sin and then he restores sin. He is the one making it happen. Verse 7. And the lame I will make the remnant. And those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. God himself will rule his people. But how is God going to do this? Well, we need to jump over to chapter 5. You know chapter 5. Chapter 5 is the most popular, most famous passage in all of Micah. Micah chapter 5. Let's begin with verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So Micah promises that a man is coming, a man to be born in Bethlehem. But he's much more than a man, for he is from old, from ancient days, from eternity past. He is therefore God. As promised in chapter 4, he is God. So this is both a man born, but also God. He is therefore to be God in the flesh, the God-man. This is all about Jesus. Micah is all about Jesus. So was Amos, and so was Hosea, and so will be Jonah and every other book we read in the Old Testament. It's all about Jesus. You see, God is judging his people, Israel and Judah, but he's also promising hope, a hope that would only be fully realized in Jesus. So all of chapter 4 and all of chapter 5 are about God being the just ruler of his people through Jesus who was coming. And what did Jesus announce? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. You see, Judah would return from exile, but they would never experience the eschatological restoration of the kingdom. That would only come when Christ came on the scene and the perfect representation of God with man in his own carnation. He is the kingdom. He is the obedient son, Israel. And so that all who are united to him are in the kingdom. So what we read next should be of no surprise, namely that the rule of God mentioned in chapter 4 would not come until after this ruler in chapter 5 came onto the scene. Look at verse 3 of chapter 5. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. 
How could, how could the people of Jesus' day, how could the Jews miss this? How could they miss the God-man? This isn't no mere man that Micah's speaking of. This is Christology. Who are the people of God in this great passage of hope? They are called brothers of the God-man. They are co-heirs by faith. They are Jew and Gentiles, children of Abraham, for they are children of faith. They are brothers not because of ethnicity, but because they are united to the only obedient, covenant-keeping Jew who ever lived. They are united to the only man who ever lived who was perfectly obedient to God for that matter. Jesus Born in Bethlehem of Judea, but was from eternity past. The glorious truth about the new covenant is that God keeps both ends of it, his and ours. The Father has always kept his covenant, and Jesus, as our substitute, keeps our end. And we are united to him by the Spirit. And there you have it, kingdom of God, triune God with man forever. It's beautiful. And we don't have time to go on reading and finishing chapter 5. I'm already seeing that. Micah is taking me a little longer than I anticipated this morning. But if you look at verses 10 through 15, you will read that God is personally involved in the removal of sin from his remnant. Again, I will, I will, I will. This time he says it six times. In chapter 1 and 2, three I wills about judgment, three I wills about grace and mercy, and in here, six I wills about how he's going to bring that about. I will, I will, I will. God forgives the sin of his people and progressively removes it from them as well. Who is a God like our God? Who is a God like our God? Moses proclaimed after they had crossed the Red Sea and saw that miracle. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And so now we come to the last prophetic word of Micah. Micah 6 and 7. And it sort of sums it all up for us. So here's how I'm putting it. Who is a God like our God? A God who wants his righteousness known, but who likewise wants his mercy shown. Chapter 6 is very much like a courtroom scene. Again, I'm just going to kind of walk through this. Here we are in the courtroom of heaven, verse 1 of chapter 6. Hear what the Lord says. So God's now, he's, he's making an announcement and he's calling witnesses. Verse 1, arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. So God is announcing a court case against Israel. And then he defends himself and his faithfulness that he has not broken the covenant in verse 3 of Micah 6. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised. And what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened at Shittim and in Gilgal. And that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. God's never been unfaithful to them. And now the people in verse 6 respond. This is them responding to the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What self-righteous, arrogant hypocrites they were. Now as if he's on God's prosecutorial team, Micah speaks up in verse 8. 
He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. In other words, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. It's that simple, O oh man. And so then the indictment comes in verse 9. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measures that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence and your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. He brings an indictment against them. And then he goes on to say that he's going to strike them a grievous blow. He's going to judge their sin. Just judgment is past. The sentence is fair and right. But have I told you yet that God's justice is never his last word? Have I said that yet today? If I haven't, let me say it again. We have in Micah an example of what one who is part of the remnant looks like. Chapter 7, Micah is speaking about how he feels about this judgment of the Lord that he's brought down on his people. And we read that in verses 1 through 6. And then we read Micah, his own profession of faith in verse 7. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be the light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. What was Micah's hope? It's the same as our hope, that God will plead our cause in the courtroom of heaven, that he will execute judgment for us upon another, and that we will somehow be vindicated. Friends, that's the cross. My friends, I encourage you when you read the Minor Prophets, this is what I do. I put crosses in the margin of my Bible, every time I see a clear pointing to the cross, we see it here. We see this great word that God would be the vindicator of Micah. And again, we have words of a great future hope for God's people in, in verses 11 through 17. A future where God will be the shepherd of his flock. A day when God's people will live in peace under the rule of a sovereign judge and under their shepherd king. For our God, our Father, is a covenant-keeping God who saves covenant-breaking sinners by uniting us by the Holy Spirit to his covenant-keeping Son, thus bringing a perfect union between God and man. Who is like that God? You see, that God has to be a personal God. That God has to be a triune God. That God is only found in the Bible. And that's the God I know. And that's the God Micah knows. So I can't say it any better than Micah. I want to draw this into a conclusion. I'm just going to let Micah say what he's already told us when we began the sermon. Verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. What a God we serve. That if you have been brought into the family of God, into the fold, if you are one of his sheep that hear his voice, my friends, what grace has been poured out upon you. The Lord is high above all the nations 
and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high? Psalm 113, 4. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I count it nothing but grace and mercy that I have any ability to know you. I am no different. I am no different than those sinners that are mentioned in this book who loved evil and hated what is good. I was born loving evil, as was every single person in this room. Oh, Lord, by your grace, perhaps we didn't love evil as much as we were capable of, but we all loved evil. We all wanted our way. We came out saying, mine. And so, Lord, there's nothing that we can come to you with and say, aha, look what I've done to know the Lord. Because none of us knew you apart from you making yourself known to us. So God, help us to revel in that. As we think about these gracious words from the the end of Micah's prophecy, help us to just enjoy these words knowing that for those in in here who are believers that this has been done for us. And for those in here who are unbelievers, let them hear the just wrath of God. And Lord, may it open their eyes to your beautiful and amazing grace. So God, we thank you for Micah. Thank you for this man who mourned over sin. God, teach us to mourn over sin. Thank you for this man who wasn't afraid to speak the truth. Lord, give us boldness to speak the truth. Lord, thank you for this man who professed his faith in you alone to be his vindicator. God, help us to have that type of faith because if our faith in any way rests upon us, we are messed up and in a whole lot of trouble. So God, we ask this. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who was born in Bethlehem, but whose origins were from ancient days, from eternity past. Pray all this in his name. Amen.